And now, business games. Welcome to a newsletter edition of Business Games, a podcast where we learn to apply critical thinking and strategic thinking principles to processing information and making better decisions under uncertainty. A word of caution. If you have an emotional response to the 2022 ongoing conflict in Ukraine, and especially if you believe the mainstream media narrative in the West and you are not ready to have this challenged, this might not be for you. So I'm happy to discuss the facts and my thinking, but I'd like to refrain from ad hominem attacks. Finally, I have an agenda. I'm trying to challenge your thinking in order to strengthen it. This is point number one. My agenda point number two is I'm trying to influence people to find a helpful, lasting peace solution to the benefit of common Ukrainians. Because in my opinion, the current Western position is neither correct in its narrative nor helpful for this goal. So I wrote a more personal note with my history as a Ukrainian in the previous newsletter pod called 2022 and 11-12. This topic by nature will be the will likely be the most controversial that we touch on. Now, furthermore, I wrote, recently wrote a blog post called NY Times Disinformation Central or how I lost trust in the Western mainstream media and what to do about it, in which I investigate the New York Times in their misrepresentation of facts on four counts. Russian disinformation campaign changes to the narrative on Ukraine and Donbass from 2014 through 2022. Outright lies, such as the fake claim of massive rapes, propagated by the former Ukrainian human rights ombudsman Denisova, who was fired by the Ukrainian government for this lie. And the fourth count that I accused New York Times on in their misrepresentation of facts is that they're protecting the New York Times ownership while running hit jobs on competitors. Not only the ownership, they basically protect the hand that feeds it. Now, you can read the post to get a full picture about the New York Times transgressions, or you can listen to the previous podcast where I just focus on those. And that's a one hour or so episode. Now, in this newsletter, I take parts of the New York Times piece and I expand the principles I use when reading the news and processing information. Okay? So if you're ready, let's go. I'll do a couple of things. I'll uh, quickly review what's been previously on Business Games um, about information processing. I'll tell you why narrative versus reality is an issue. Uh, you are being manipulated and it is a problem. Then I'll give you a dozen thinking principles that I use. I'll tell you which one is the most important I consider. And then we'll close off by talking a little bit about uh, the sources of information. So, previously on business games, about the information processing, what have we done? We looked at business experimentation, how to use experimental method to deal with uncertainty and how to build processes to set up a learning organization. Within experimentation, you need to process a lot of information before you come up with hypotheses to test, while you're testing these hypotheses, and after that, incorporating the results of the tests. Now, we talked, there are four pieces that I want to highlight specifically. We talked about the wisdom of the crowd versus information cascade with Professor Ananis Chowdhury. And these two concepts look similar sometimes, but completely different. Information cascade is when many people are repeating the same thing without your knowledge. You don't know that they're repeating the same thing, but they are. It's very dangerous because just repeating the same piece of information. Now, when many people are saying independent things, independent opinions, the aggregation of those opinions can lead to the wisdom of the crowd. But the key part is independence. The insidiousness of information cascades is when a lot of, uh, when you think it's wisdom of the crowd, because a lot of people are telling you stuff, you don't know that it's the same opinion. In particular, the Denisova story about uh, Russians using rape, allegedly, as a weapon was an example of an information cascade. It was many different 
news outlets such as CNN, BBC, Guardian, Huffington Post, etc., 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 we're repeating exactly the same lie. It's a provable lie because Denisova admitted that it was a fabrication. So we're repeating the same fabrication over and over. You as an independent person who might not be reading, who might just be reading headlines, would see that a lot of seemingly independent sources are publishing the same thing, and you would think, oh, there's truth to it. But there isn't. It was all a republication of exactly the same fabrication. Now, we also talked about monitoring the weak signals with Melissa Clark Reynolds, and we discussed how Melissa was able to predict the pandemic before everybody else. So we that that's our most downloaded uh, to-date episode, basically from season two, week five. Don't ask what would I do in their shoes, ask what would they do in their shoes. And it also talks about the necessity to be putting yourself in other people's shoes and thinking as if they are thinking, not like, what would you do in their situation? So I also wrote an article about predicting NBA finals, where in the preseason of 2021-22 season, Brooklyn Nets and the LA Lakers were the two most predicted entities in the finals. And even then, these predictions were stupid, and the article goes into why. But uh, the whole predicting industry basically got them wrong, and there I get into how they were processing information, what information they were processing, and why that particular processing of information was biased, and how could the whole prediction industry get, get, get it so wrong. Now, we know it's wrong, but it, was, it looked wrong even back then. Of course, now we have hindsight, which is another danger. But anyway, read that article if you want. And the fourth element that we discussed in a number of our podcast episodes quite independently by different people was the book called Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction by Philip E. Tetlock and Dan Gardner. Now, narrative versus reality. You are being manipulated, okay? So first of all, you're always being manipulated. I'm manipulating you now, okay? It's impossible not to be manipulated. It's impossible not to manipulate people. We all want to convince others that we are right, want to convince ourselves that we are right and we want to convince others. It's really important. The emotionally charged language about right and wrong is designed exactly with this goal in mind, to make you make an emotional choice. So that's marketing 101. What is possible though is to say things like, what's more likely, A or B? Right and wrong is unhelpful. Likelihood is more helpful. Because remember, absolute certainty is not the goal, we want to be able to evaluate likelihoods of what's more likely and what's less likely. Okay, so I'll share with you my thinking about some of the narratives that are prevalent in Western media on the conflict, and in particular how I analyze these. I'll share with you today the methods that I use. You don't have to agree with me on the outcomes. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to enrich your toolbox. We might build different structures. But if I can expand your understanding of the tools and your utilization of different tools, you might add your own knowledge and your own tools to it. You might build better structures than I can. So the importance of, of all of this content is to show what kind of questions I'm asking and ask your own questions. So how much of a problem is manipulation? I got three major issues with this, okay? So we cannot trust, number, number one, we cannot trust mainstream media on important topics. So I've shown it in the previous episode and in the article based on the New York Times. New York Times participates in a concerted anti-Russia campaign. New York Times can present relatively balanced reporting like they did in 2014 about Kiev actions in Donbass, but the balance disappeared this year. New York Times lies. That's provable. New York Times does not report against that hand that feeds it. And we've also seen the repetitive amplification of lies, as I already mentioned, it's basically example of an information cascade, as in Denisova's rape fabrications. So why is this an important problem that requires action? So we cannot... I trust the mainstream media to intelligently and objectively present international conflicts 
what can we trust them with? The erosion of trust is very bad. Once eroded, you don't know. They could be presenting everything else purely objectively. I wouldn't know. It's difficult for me to lose trust, but once lost, it's really difficult for anybody to regain it, my trust. So an honest admission would be it's a hybrid war. Russia is our enemy. We are information warriors against Russia. And so that would describe the situation much better, would also position Russia on the other side. And, you know, we know they lie. Everybody lies. And that would be an honest representation. But New York Times and their ilk are pretending that only Russia runs disinformation campaigns, and they do not. And they are the truth. Now, it should be clear by now that instead of speaking truth to power, modern mainstream media is much closer to being a PR arm for those in power, used as information warriors against the competition. The competition could be domestic or international. Furthermore, liars cannot be trusted to lecture anyone on misinformation disinformation campaigns. And the most insidious thing is that lies lead to manufactured consents for supporting policies that go against your the electorate's interests. If the interests were aligned, in fact, no lying would be necessary. But getting involved in an international conflict sabotage the food and energy prices and security all over the world. These are tangible human costs associated with misunderstanding and misrepresenting the world affairs. So this manufactured consent is real. And it leads to you supporting policies that go against your interests. Now, given the problem, what are we to do as individuals? Okay, especially when we do not have much time, as for example, I afforded to investigate in the Ukrainian conflict, because honestly, who has that much time? So I'm going to present to you a dozen thinking principles that I use that can be used relatively fast. Now, bad news first, okay, there are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. This requires a thought. They don't have to take a lot of time, but they have to take mental discipline. Okay? So the good news is that there are principles that you can use. You won't get everything with 100% accuracy because it's impossible. But if you go from 30% understanding to 60% understanding, you've doubled your understanding and you understand more than half the situation. Well, previously you understood way less than half. Okay, so I present a dozen. The article had seven, but I've added some others that weren't related necessarily to that particular article, but the other concepts that I use anyway. Okay, so the principles are also not in order of importance. I'm going to present the seven from the article first and then others, and there's some others which are probably even more important than the seven from the article. So, principle number one, avoid oversimplification and reductions of complex issues, especially conflicts, into black and white, good versus evil. So, a dead giveaway of, like, you know that you're being manipulated. If somebody presents you an emotional issue in, in this is right and this is wrong, sort of black and white, right versus wrong, good versus evil argument. The world doesn't work this way. There are no fairy tale interpretations. And I'm paraphrasing Pope Francis here. There are many, many people, including Pope Francis, who said that this conflict should not be looked at from this point of view. So it's not even my invention. There are a lot of people that I can back my views up with. As part of this, avoid oversimplification reductions to black and white good versus evil. I would suggest sit on the story. Avoid snap judgment, especially based on emotions. Ask yourself, what if I'm wrong? Now, as a corollary, avoiding oversimplifications also means trying to understand all the forces that are acting on the situation, including the history of all the actions that led to the situation or the conflict in question. How actions of certain actors influenced the possibilities of the other actors. Well, that's game theory and so on and so forth. So in short, about this principle, 
Putin woke up one day crazed from the lockdown and decided to invade Ukraine because he is just evil is never a good explanation of the real world. It's, it's stupid. Principle number two. Ask, who benefits from this presentation of the facts? This is a version of follow the money. So Denisova lied in order to help Ukraine. It worked. The incentive cause effect links are very clear. Denisova wanted to help Ukraine, therefore she lied. She misrepresented the truth or invented the truth, fabricated, sorry, she invented the lies, obviously. She, she fabricated stuff with a certain goal in mind. She had a clear, admitted incentive. So corollary of this, you can have more trust in something that goes against the reporter's incentives. So, for example, when the Ukrainian journalists of Ukrainska Pravda decided to publish their exposés of expose of Denisova's lies, they preceded their article with these words. Even though it could greatly harm the state in the conditions of war, it is also our duty to tell the story. Because they went against their incentive, their immediate incentive, they're more easy, like they could have, they didn't have to publish it. They wouldn't even have been lying necessarily, they just didn't have to publish their investigation that would have been consistent with their incentives. Now, they went against it. And therefore, I trust that. I, I actually hold them now in higher regard than I do New York Times, for example, because they did something that would hurt them or they would hurt the country they're in. And they acknowledged it. And they did it anyway because it was the right thing to do. Principle number three. Separate fact from the interpretation and ask War, under what conditions would this fact be true? Now here we're talking about, so previously we're talking about who would benefit from the misrepresentation or for the interpretation. Here we're talking about, we're separating the interpretation and going to the facts. Under what conditions would this be true? We actually want to know, not the presentation, but the interpretation of facts. Okay? So, by the way, some of these principles overlap a little bit. So they're not really mutually exclusive, but they work together. So I reckon that one could have switched on one's critical thinking and be confident that in the fact that Denisova lied. Why? Because the statement Russian army uses rape as a weapon would only be true, only, if the Russians were some sort of monsters. In other words, this is similar to a still present ugly medieval anti-Semitic canard of blood libel that accused Jews of murdering Christian children and using their blood in rituals. In both cases, it's nothing other than naked, ugly racism. Now also ask, what are the alternative explanations for the situation? Under what other conditions could this fact also be true? As I talked elsewhere, Rape is an ugly thing that unfortunately happens during peacetime, so we can be sure that it happens during wartime. But it's scale effect. Who are the perpetrators? What is the interpretation? What are possible explanations? For example, maybe it doesn't happen at scale. Maybe there's one case. Maybe the perpetrators are foreign legionaries fighting on the side of Kiev. Maybe it's the nationalistic paramilitaries with a history of war crimes that Ukraine released from prisons. Maybe it's the local criminals who are using the wartime for their own purposes. Now, when you're looking for alternatives, consider applying Occam's razor or the principle of parsimony and saying basically avoid convoluted hypotheses. Hypotheses should also be falsifiable. Now, we know it from our experimental season that unless you can falsify it, unless you can prove it to be wrong, it's, it's a belief. And then keep asking why until you get to a suitable explanation. So, again, just asking a lot of why. So, I'd say, well, Russian army uses rape as a weapon. Why? Because they're just evil. If you run into that, Arguments, that's not a good argument. Again, it's just, it's the same argument as 
there, there is a there's a Jewish cabal who runs everything. Why? Because Jews are evil. You know, it's it's the same. It's anti-Semitic. It's racist. It's Russophobic. It's ugly. And you know that you're on the wrong track if you are seriously considering those as arguments. Finally, when looking into actions and possible motivations, understand if the actions can be explained from a rational point of view first. But before you start going into this person is just insane argument, right? It's, it's the same. Putin woke up crazed and decided to do stuff because evil, right? That's not a good starting position. It's a corollary. Beware the absolute evil arguments. So these are highly likely bullshit. Now, when are faced with an ostensibly terrible action by somebody, try to understand the forces that brought about such an action. Again, this is avoid oversimplifying things. Now, avoid overcomplicating things, but also avoid oversimplifying things just because something looks wrong. An example, a person shoots another person. Is that a homicide or a manslaughter? Well, it could also be self-defense. So yes, the person pulled the trigger. But if they acted in self-defense, they would go free. Why? Because we acknowledge that self-defense is a mitigating circumstance. So it's terrible action killing somebody, but under mitigating circumstances, it's not a crime. So look at, at these things. What compelled the person to act this way? On the other hand, don't dismiss a historical link to the actual World War II Nazis either, if such a historical link is present. Too many people are accused of being Nazis, but the flip side of it is ignoring the actual Nazis when there are actual Nazis. Now, a word of caution in this. We know people are not rational, people are emotional. But on the other hand, when there are major decisions and groups of people are involved, an argument they're just evil is never a good starting argument. Always look for some benefit and for who benefits from this or that action. So that's point number three. Under what conditions would this be true? Look for alternatives. Look, always look for the benefit. Avoid the absolute evil arguments. Point number four, principle number four. Look at how a situation was covered from a over a longer period of time by the same media. So as we see from the New York Times coverage, it changed. And we see that change quite drastically, as if there's an amnesia that took place abruptly on the 24th of February 2022. And the, the change after that was complete, the, the coverage after that had a completely different narrative. If the narrative changes, are there reasons provided? For example, new evidence. It could be that we've learned something. But if there is an abrupt narrative for no particularly good reason, it's not reflective of the underlying truth. This is a, a very convenient technique, by the way, because it's very difficult to be lying consistently and in different ways, but, but consistently about the same thing over a long period of time. Uh, sometimes, you know, truth will out. It's also, you, you don't actually depend on anything. You don't, it's a critical thinking element. Just see how the coverage changed. Now, if it changed, and no reasons were provided, you know something's weird. You don't necessarily what, know what is weird, but you know something is weird. Principle number five, who or what are the sources? Is it one or are there many? In particular, like, is it one story copied and pasted many times? Because it's been independently corroborated from multiple independent sources. Uh, in the Denisova and the uh, rape scale allegations or fabrications, there's just one person. Now, there is a corollary. Beware personal stories from a war-torn country. Now, don't discount them, but ask, under what conditions are these testimonies obtained? Had these testimonies been obtained? Under what conditions? Could they be objective? The situation with the U Ukrainian conflict is one of the major issues, is that all of the testimonies on the Ukrainian side and a lot of the evidence in various criminal cases including the Malaysia Airlines MH17 downing, had been prepared or presented by SBU, the Ukrainian 
FBI slash CIA equivalent, but probably FBI equivalent. We know that ESBU tortures people, kidnaps people, compels people to give evidence, tempers with evidence. We know it has been covered by the Amnesty International and various other institutes. And we just know that by their nature of being secret agents, that's what is part of their job description. So it's not a conspiracy theory. They do lie. When do they lie? We, we I don't know. But I would be highly dubious of anything that Ukrainians say. Now, furthermore, about the objective witnesses, it is against the law to deny Russian aggression. And there, there are cases that are being presented into court when the Ukrainian civilians are being taken to court for denying Russian aggression. What does that mean? That means that by the law, you cannot say anything other than Russia bad. Now, you could say Russia was not bad, but that would be denying Russian aggression, and you will be prosecuted. So actually, you can say it, but it's just not in your best interest to say anything other than Russia bad. Talked about the information cascades and wisdom of the crowd. So we can wrap up this thing with the what are the sources, who are the sources, had they been compelled to say certain things, is it in their best interest to say certain things, is it one source or many sources? Are they able to say their independent opinions or not? Principle number six, ask, are the actions of the actors consistent with the stated objectives? When you're looking at the interpretation of things, that's another in interpretative thing, and, and also a game theoretic principle, is are the actions, is basically how much are the actors bullshitting? Talk is cheap, they can state stuff, but they're completely different. So in particular, this this case, almost every foreign official and media presents the policy of no negotiation and sending more and stronger weapons to the Kiev regime as being done for the benefit of the Ukrainian people. It's valid to ask, how is it for the benefit of the Ukrainian people? What's better for the common Ukrainian people, to live or to die? If to die, then to die for what? If you believe that Russians are genocidal monsters and the Ukrainians are literally fighting for their survival, then it would be a just proxy war by the West. But in that case, wouldn't we see carpet bombing of Ukrainian cities, rivers of blood and overwhelming evidence of this alleged genocide? Also, if this were true, wouldn't it be our Western obligation to put boots on the ground? Now, I'm going to say here that there is zero evidence that Russian soldiers are targeting civilians. It's a controversial statement. I have evidence that requires a completely different post. There will be a different post, but just for now, there's definitely no carpet bombing of the cities. There, there is targeting dual-purpose infrastructure, but there's no targeting, there's no targeting of hospitals, for example, by the by the Russians. There is no targeting of hospitals proven beyond any reasonable doubt. Let's put it that way. So there is no evidence that Russians are specifically targeting civilians. There is, in fact, no evidence that Russia is trying to eradicate Ukraine, Ukrainians. It just it doesn't exist. Just the fact that there are tens of millions of Ukrainians in Russia, I believe there's over 10 million. There's, there's been several million by the latest census of about uh, 10 years ago and latest available census, and there's been uh, 7 to 10 million refugees, Ukrainian refugees going to Russia. Russia has Ukrainian restaurants, Ukrainian uh, generally appreciates Ukrainian culture, it's quite popular, Ukrainian songs, and so on and so forth. There is no evidence of the genocide. And also, there is no Western government that wants to put the actual boots on the ground, meaning that they themselves do not believe the existential threat to the Ukrainian people from Russia, or at least they don't believe it enough to warrant the costs of a head-on collision. So the claim that Russians want to wipe Ukrainians out is a ridiculous claim, in my opinion, as a Ukrainian. So is prolonging the conflict in the best interest of the Ukrainian people? It's a valid question. In my opinion, no. Any policy that stops the conflict sooner is good for the common Ukrainian people. And any policy that prolongs the conflict is bad for the Ukrainian people. 
So what alternative explanations could there be for the policy that effectively prolongs the conflict? Because the stated objectives of helping Ukraine and the policies taken by the West are not consistent. Now, using Ukraine as a battering ram in a hybrid war on Russia seems like the only explanation that fits here. It is a credible explanation. If this is a hidden objective, then it's totally consistent with the policies of fighting Russia until the last Ukrainian. And by the way, some US leaders freely admit it. They admit that it is an incredibly cost-effective way to fight Russia by supplying weapons to Ukraine. It's low risk, high reward. Using Ukrainian soldiers, throwing them into the meat grinder, supplying them weapons is a low cost, because you're not wasting your own human resources. But it does nothing to the Ukrainian people. We have to understand this. So ask, are the actions of the actors consistent with the stated objectives? Principle number six. Principle number seven. Diversify your sources of information by following independent journalists. Also not only independent. You need to expose yourself, especially to those sources you dislike. If you're a fan of CNN, watch Fox News. Watch RT. Watch the Chinese news. Understand your enemy, so to speak. See how they cover the topic. Compare and contrast. Principle number eight, be a detective. Look for means, motive, opportunity. Now, usually we have a concept of innocent until proven guilty and proven beyond any reasonable doubt. Now, it seems to be thrown away here and it's violated, so Russia is pro you know, guilty until proven innocent. I think it's a major problem. And I think you need to resist that. And I think you need to look for the means, motive, and opportunity. And you will see that in many different things that Russia is accused of, yes, they had means and opportunity, but they had no motive of doing that. And this is a topic for a separate post that I will do. But I will show that oftentimes Ukrainians, in fact, also had means and opportunity, and they also had the motivation for doing certain things that Russia is being accused of. Now, principle number nine. Choose multiple frames of reference through which to filter information. There are at least two ways of reference, two major frames of reference to look at this conflict from just from the inside Ukraine. I'm not talking about Russia's point of view. There, there are more frames of reference, but just to look at the, at the Ukrainian conflict in Donbass. So number A, reference A. This is an unprovoked aggression of Putin against Ukraine, and Ukrainians all band together in their fight against the neo-imperialism of Russia. And B, this is a civil war that started in 2014 when the post-Euromaidan Kiev regime sent tanks to Donbass when Donbass people did not accept the results of the 2014 coup against the lawfully elected president Yanukovych and government. Depending on which of these A or B you choose, you will interpret the facts, troops entered the city, for example, completely differently. You could consider it occupation or liberation. Now, this is nothing other than confirmation bias. Choosing a frame of reference and filtering the facts through that frame of reference is a confirmation bias, because you will come to whatever conclusion you want to come to, which will just confirm your original framing, frame of reference. So, which is why I highly recommend choosing competing frames. These are your mutually exclusive hypotheses. And then filtering all the facts through these. Which frame is more correct will become apparent over time because some facts will fit one frame better than the other. Now, maybe several frames could be correct-ish. But over time, you will figure out which one is more correct-ish. And this is an iterative process. You choose the frame to interpret the facts, see how the interpretation affects the choice of the frame. You do it over and over again. If you just choose a frame of reference, Russia bad, and then filter all the facts, you will come to that conclusion, Russia bad, because of course it's bad because they invaded. If you choose a different frame of reference, you will see that as a humanitarian intervention and you will prove that. They'll say, well, they invaded because they had to, because the West wouldn't honor the Minsk Accords, and there was a genocide of the Donbass people. So it's a humanitarian intervention, which is noble. And then you will filter all the facts through that frame of reference. Now, you need to choose both, and you need to filter all the facts through different frames of references, and you need to do it iteratively, and over time, 
you will figure out which one is more correct. Principle number 10. In strategic risk management, there is a pastel framework. And basically it says when evaluating the risk of a particular event, look at these aspects. Political, economic, sociological, technological, environmental, and legal. Pastel. Now, I look at something similar when evaluating geopolitical interactions. Let's call it, let's call it peg ship. Not a word like pestle, but peg ship has a ship in it, has a peg, I don't know, peg ship. So say, look at uh, political forces slash actors, including both domestic and foreign influences. That's P. E stands for economic groups slash business interests. Again, could be domestic and foreign. G for, stands for geography resources. In this particular thing, Donbass is the richest part of Ukraine. So Ukrainian nationalists in Kiev just cannot just let it go. They don't like the Donbass people, but they like Donbass resources. And that's consistent with the reports that showed up in the New York Times when the Ukrainians were shelling their own villages with cluster munitions because they care more about the land than the people living on that land. S stands for societal slash socioeconomic pressures. And here you can basically say that radical leanings appear when people feel injustice towards themselves and when there is no positive economic outlook, which was a major reason for the Maidan and for the rise of the neo-Nazis in Ukraine. It's a, the poorest country in Europe and the most corrupt country in Europe. And when the youth does not see the positive economic lifts and the social mobility, so to speak, it's very easy to blame or it's very easy to be susceptible to blaming others for your problems. People in Donbass, Russians, whatever. Now, H stands for history of grievances or shared struggle. And anything in Europe or in other parts of the world basically goes generations, if not thousands of years of conflicts. Then I stands for international law slash precedents slash similar situations. You could draw a parallel between Donbass and Kosovo, for example. And P stands for propaganda. And basically the basic principle there is that every side lies. So there's always propaganda. We just need to, you know, <laughs> there is Western propaganda, okay? So that's principle number 10 is use the ship framework. Principle number 11 is do not underestimate the role of randomness, incompetence, mistakes, and unintended consequences. Okay, so this is a combination of hindsight bias, which is also known as neutral long phenomenon or creeping determinism, and Henlon's razor. And the Henlon's razor being never attribute to malice that which is easily explained by stupidity. An example of this, right, of the hindsight bias. Russia cannot be afraid of NATO because its actions led to Finland applying to get into NATO, thereby moving NATO closer to Russia. So when Russia says that they invaded Ukraine because of the NATO expansion, you go, well, that's not true because look at Finland. Now, that's an example of a confirmation bias together with some Henlon's razor. There could be many differences between Ukraine and in NATO and Finland in NATO. And it's also possible that Finland joining NATO is an unintended and not foreseen consequence. It can also be that there were no good moves for Russian Federation to choose from and they had to choose between several bad ones. There could be many explanations based on things we don't know before this oversimplified, deterministic, hindsight-biased explanation should be accepted. So knowing what you know now, you cannot use it as if it was known back then and so, say, well, it should have been thought through. Because there could be many different outcomes, there could be many different ways that the world evolves. And finally, principle number 12, there's no single reliable source. Everyone lies and misinforms. Maybe to a degree, maybe on different topics, maybe unwittingly. But everyone lies. Okay, some of these take a bit longer than others. Digging up history from different angles is relatively more time-consuming. But the key is this. Pausing, calming the emotions, asking who benefits, what alternative explanations can there be, and who is the source? All of these consume relatively little time. So you can apply them anywhere. As, long, as soon as you're reading, just apply these questions. Ask these questions. Apply these critical thinking principles. Now, you might not get everything correct, because that's not possible. But with these principles, and use your other ones, you'd get closer to the truth more of the time. 
And of all of these, as I said, I promise to highlight the most important one. To me, the frame of reference is the most important factor. If you only use a single frame of reference, you'll be subject to confirmation bias. So if you take nothing else away from this, if you only take one thing away, let this be it. If you only use a single frame of reference, you'll be subject to a confirmation bias. If your stance on this conflict is put in bed, you'll find plenty of evidence for this. If, alternatively, your stance is the US bad, USA bad, you'll find plenty of evidence for this too. Now, even worse, you'll discount any evidence to the contrary. That's how confirmation bias works. Which is exactly why I recommend choosing competing frames and filtering all the facts through these. And then over time, seeing which one of the competing frames of reference fits the facts better. Some facts would fit one frame better than the other. So maybe several frames could be correctish. Remember, we're after increasing the likelihood of our understanding of complexity. No simple narrative will likely be right. And note on the sources of information, there is no single source reliable, there is no single reliable source of information. Everyone lies. The goal is not to find a reliable source. The goal is to increase your sources, to ask critical questions, compare and contrast the information provided by these different sources. This triplet is your goal. Now, I use Wikipedia, for example, as a good source. Is it a good source? It depends. And how you feel about it is exactly how you stand on the, on the one underlying fact. Anyone can edit. Now, for some it's a bug, for others it's a feature. If you believe in the wisdom of the crowd, then Wikipedia is a great source, exactly for this reason. If you believe that this could lead to misinformation sneaking in because of the lack of overview, then, uh, or non-experts publishing stuff, or even malicious intent, then you'll be inclined to see Wikipedia as a bad source. Now, my personal feeling is that I believe it's a good source, because I believe in the wisdom of the crowd, and I think over time it filters out the most egregious errors, exactly because anybody can edit. There are a couple of articles on the conversation, EdTech, from 2017, 2021, and also the reliability of Wikipedia. On Wikipedia is a good page for various scientific studies about the reliability of Wikipedia. Whenever you're reading Wikipedia, you apply all the same things that we already discussed. Predominantly using critical thinking, triangulating evidence with other sources, and checking the citations, which correspond to our dozen critical thinking principles. So these are the things that are suggested, and these are the obvious things that I would suggest as well. Now, I personally would add these three things in addition. So using critical thinking, triangulating evidence with other sources, and checking the citations. And the three things in addition uh, are, one, check the citations in the original language. If the original language is different to the wiki page that you're looking at, for example, I checked the Ukrainian original citations when reading something in the English version of the Wikipedia just to verify that the, it was correctly cited. Number two, check all the Wikipedia language pages on the topic of interest and compare the content, especially on the controversial topics. The topics of genocide, for example, or topics of uh, some historical grievances. Look at the languages, if you can, look at the pages in both languages of the, or if more than one, then more than one, all of the languages of all the parties to the conflict. Uh, number three, check the service pages that show how many people monitor this topic, how many people edit, and how many editions, and so on and so forth. Okay? The more people monitor, the more people edit, the more you can trust the wisdom of the crowd. And I also go into, in the text version of this, I go into the alternative journalists to follow on Ukraine and on the geopolitics overall. Now... I'm not going to go into details about every single, so in the text version you can read way more about it, but what I would do, and this is, this is an important thing, is I will give you a list of resources with all the links in the show notes and on the webpage. More importantly, on the webpage, subscribe to the newsletter. Subscribing to the newsletter will get you access to all of the free content on the site. It's not behind a paywall. I'm, this season is not behind a paywall. There might be something behind the paywall, but it will be very, very limited. This season is by and large behind an email wall. You need an email subscription. 
to this and you will get way more stuff and you will get these very things sent to your inbox as well as provided on the podcast. But the text, I can just cover more stuff in the text, obviously. I will say one thing. Even if I place people here, I don't necessarily blindly trust them. I don't agree with everything they say. And I try to never switch off my critical thinking apparatus and still ask all the same questions as with any source. But I'll run through the sources with you. So first and foremost, I'm a great believer in, in the dictum. You want to understand what people think? Talk to these people. So let's start with the Ukrainian source run by Ukrainians, but which is not subject to the Zelensky regime. Because I think it's an important, important source. If you believe in the freedom of speech, you will want this source. And the source is currently available in Russian, English, German, Spanish, Italian, and Polish. And it's called Mria News. M-R-I-Y-A dot news, I believe. Mria means dream in Ukrainian. And so that's a Ukrainian-centric view on the current affairs. They're critical of Zelensky. And they represent an alternative view to the official Kiev. And I think you want this source. Scott Ritter is a former United States Marine Corps intelligence officer and the UN weapons inspector. And I have the highest respect for Scott because he stood up to the Bush administration on the claims of the Iraq and weapons of mass destruction. He was against that involvement. Just by that, I regard him highly. Now, if you Google for him, you will see some issues with Scott's character. So go, go look him up and see whether that detracts from your trust in him. It does not at all, because I don't know the details. I know the conviction. I don't know the details or the context. I don't want to know the details or context. To me, his personal transgression has nothing to do with his credibility and his integrity when talking about the geopolitics and speaking truth to power. So I trust him and trust his opinions. He's clearly biased. Absolutely. Everyone is. It's hard not to be. But that bias is very transparent. And again, I hold him in high regard. Now you've got Eva Bartlett. You've got Johnny James Miller, who works for the Iranian news channel, Press TV. And I interviewed Johnny, and that interview is really, really good and will be coming up shortly when edited. I also like Redacted with Natalie and Clayton Morris. It's an independent outfit. I think they employ just them to plus one or two others. Again, don't necessarily always agree with everything they say, but they do provide an independent look at things, and I find their critical thinking to be quite good. Useful Edits with Katie Halper and Aaron Maté, and they cover a lot of alternative views, including some journalists who had gone to Ukraine and then came back and reported on what they saw, which is, uh, Lindsay Snell is, is one such. So I'm pretty sure you could look at this list and say, oh, they're all Russian propagandists, but again, as I showed you, New York Times used to be a Russian propagandist because they were publishing all the Russian talking points in the past. So to me, this accusation really holds no meaning. Alex Rubinstein writes for gray, for the gray zone. Alina Lip. Alina Lip is German. She's half German, half Russian. She has a German mother, was born in Germany, speaks with German accent, speaks very good Russian, but with a German accent. There, there are many articles about her accusing her of stuff. There is a Swiss article. It's written in German. Basically says uh, that, that she has close contacts with Kremlin. There, the evidence that they provide is a photo from Alina's social media with Maria Zaharova, who is a spokeswoman for the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Alina Lip is also accused of spreading Russian propaganda because she was wearing a T-shirt with a Z sign on it. And um, I, I don't know, by the same logic, Obama is an agent of the Kremlin because there is a photo of him with Putin, you know? So if, if, if there is a photo with a spokesperson whose job it is to meet with reporters and to interact with the public, 
if a photo with that person is an evidence of anything, of the close collaboration between Alina Lip and the Russian government, then I'm Duke of Edinburgh. You know, it's, this is a stupid argument. But Alina Lip is being smeared in the German-speaking media quite a lot. The Duran is a very good source of uh, geopolitical discussion, in my opinion. Almost all of their guests are good, apart from some who I don't like, who I dis distrust. But again, I'm able to see their, you know, what they do and how they do it, and I think I'm able to see through that. It's run by two guys, one of whom is Alexander Mercuris, who is a former lawyer who was struck from the bar for deceiving a client. So he did have that. This was in 2006. He admitted it. I had not known about this when I started listening to them. They say sensible things, in my opinion. And also, I'm not going to hold something that he admitted to a transgression in 2006 against his geopolitical conversations now. So if you want to hold this against him, be free to do so. I'm not. But I'm quite happy to report this. And if you look him up, you'll go, oh. and I had conversations with people like that. And they go, I don't want to be, you know, listening to him. My opinion is that if you don't want to listen to anybody with a transgression, you'll soon run out of sources because you can always find for anybody some transgression somewhere it has nothing to do with what they're doing now, but something in their past. I'm pretty sure, I mean, everybody has skeletons in the closet. If you're going to be treating people by their worst day, you will not treat with anybody. And last but not least, Oliver Boyd Barrett, who is the professor emeritus specializing in media and propaganda. He's a US-based professor of media. He wrote many books. He writes on Substack. His current Substack newsletter is Empire Communication and NATO Wars. And Oliver is also my guest in an upcoming episode, which is already recorded and it lasts three hours. And I will edit it and put it up. It's a fantastic episode. I trust him. So these are the people that I would add to your stable of resources on Ukraine and also on international conflicts. They're not 100% right 100% of the time, but they're available editions. And as a final word, given that everybody in media lies and misinforms, how do we know what's true and what's not? Well, in reality, the goal is not to find out the one source of truth, but diversify the sources, multiply the sources, ask critical questions, compare and contrast. These are your goals. If you follow these principles, you'll more likely understand the world better than if you don't follow these principles. And you'll be able to not only process the information better, but therefore also make better decisions under uncertainty. Remember, the uncertainty is not only about the future, there's also uncertainty about the present and the past. Now, hit me up on Twitter under at businessgamesai or LinkedIn. You can look up Business Games with AI. Share this post and write your own suggestions on how to process information. How do you do it? Thank you for listening.